Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians 3, and we are going to finish our series on road rules, and we have already looked in the previous three messages about different social structures that are influenced by our relationship with Christ. The idea is this, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that we are raised in Christ, as Colossians 3.1 says, that that influences how we function as parents. It influences how, as children, we relate to our parents. It influences our marriages, all right? And today, we're going to learn that it influences our labor. The work situation, obviously, in the first century was much different than ours, and it's done here, as Paul writes, in a motif of a uh, slave-master relationship. But I'm going to seek to apply this in terms of the work world today. Now, we can recognize that this slave-master motif is certainly different than the free market society that we enjoy here in America, but it was even different in the slave trade that our country experienced. Uh, There were definitely similarities, but nearly half of the population of Rome were slaves. And and often it was kind of an all-in-house deal. The the, the slaves did all the labor. uh, They raised the kids. I mean, they they did everything. But it, it begs the question as we think about this, why wouldn't Paul say, hey, rise up and revolt against this slave trade. I mean, why didn't he create that kind of situation for them to to respond instead of just accepting it? And several different theories are are out there. Some say that, well, the, the church, you know, was just kind of fledgling beginning, that its job was not to be this, you know, to bring about social change necessarily. It was a minority group with very little political power. Um, Others say that slavery was never advocated in the Bible, but Paul is just dealing with the present reality of what was there in the first century. But for my money, I think the best explanation is, is this idea. And that is that to change society, to change a social structure, it's best to change individual lives, change individual hearts. And how best to do that than with the gospel? So, if, if people understood their relationship with Christ, then they are, in essence, going to change every social structure that they are in, you know, family and, and work and society. That makes sense. Uh, the book of Philemon, for instance, uh, it illustrates this, this principle. Paul was talking to Philemon, the, the book that bears his name. Philemon was a slave owner. He was dealing with Onesimus, who was a slave who ran away, and Paul basically tells Philemon to to forgive him, to take him back, and to treat him with dignity as an individual, as a brother in Christ. Well, now think of that. If you're going to treat a slave like a brother in Christ, and that's your highest calling, that you're going to treat him with dignity as as a human being, how's that going to affect the institution of slavery? (laughs) That's not going to help it, that's for sure. Marvin Vincent, a commentator, says this, that the principle of the gospel not only curtailed slavery's abuses, but destroyed the thing itself, for it could not exist 
without its abuses. To destroy its abuses was to destroy it. And so this master-slave relationship was transformed by the gospel as both the master and the slave understood their responsibilities before God and they had, you know, a dignified relationship with one another that uh, ideally then the institution itself would be set aside. And so um, we also read in, in Galatians 3.28 where it makes the point that there is neither slave nor free in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is operating out of theology, out of a theology of the, the dignity of the human being and the, the, the sovereignty of God over every social institution. And so that brings us then to today, and we're going to look at this passage. Let's all stand as we look at Colossians 3. I'm going to read the whole passage just for the sake of context, and then we'll, we'll just deal with verses uh, 22 through uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, Father, as we deal with this passage that is so extremely practical, I pray that you would transform our own perspectives of work transform our own places of employment as we allow you to be Lord of our work life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I once read a little-known fact of church history reported by Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers who died in 165 A.D. Justin Martyr noted that when he was in Galilee, now check this out, that he had apparently noticed some plows that had been made by Jesus. Now think of that. Plows that had been made by Jesus that had endured a whole century. Now we know that Jesus was a carpenter, and apparently his plows were of the highest quality and lasted beyond normal expectations. Now, it's not a surprising fact to me that Jesus, as a carpenter, would be a good one. I mean, really, what, what kind of carpenter do you think Jesus would be? I mean, would he be the kind that, you know, never showed up on time, that he quit early, that he complained about his work or how hard things were? I doubt that. No, instead, he probably put his head down, did his work without complaint, and did it in an excellent way. That, I think, we're all on board with. But there's little information, obviously, about the kind of carpenter that Jesus was. We just have this little piece of information from Justin Martyr. But the mindset, I want to suggest to you, that many Christians have from a, as far as a employer or employee comes from a rather weak perspective, I would suggest. I mean, there's a familiar saying by Gordon Dahl 
who said this, and you've probably heard this before. Our problem today is that we worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. We worship our work. When we do that, I would suggest that our employment cannot meet our expectations, and we suffer from a degenerative work disease. Many idols that we make of earthly things, when we do that, and especially of work, that creates a degenerative work disease, and it leads to heart problems. Ecclesiastes 2.22 reiterates, what has a man from all the toil work and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? You could underline that beneath the sun. It means without a godly perspective, why does he work? Why does he work? I mean, we're probably all guilty of using synonyms for work, such as the daily grind, right? Drudgery, pain, like working in the salt mines, right? Uh, Servitude, stressful, struggle, trouble. Is it conceivable that today, given the understanding that Christ is in us and we are in Christ, and given these injunctions here at the end of chapter 3, that God could change our perspective and we could offer to God our work as an act of worship? That, that it would be an act of worship and not the object of our worship? Consider that in the garden, when everything was faultless, sin had not entered the picture yet, and God gave man work, and it was good. It was a part of God's plan. Labor had a purpose beyond just the immediate, not just for man's satisfaction. Genesis tells us that the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. I mean, man found his satisfaction in doing his work. It had a purpose. Verse 22 through 23 says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The principle is that we offer respectful and excellent service to our employer because we recognize our accountability to God and our desire to please him. Now, Paul is convinced that this Christological orientation, the fact that Christ is Lord over all, that he he infiltrates every aspect of our life, this will transform our employment to an act of worship. Again, not the object of worship. And that our work would be done in an excellent fashion. It obviously, as Paul says in the passage, moves us beyond just satisfying the bosses. In other words, we, we only work hard when the boss is around. You ever do that? You know, you're especially attentive if the boss is looking over your shoulder. But here, Paul is saying, no, don't just do that. Have an inner motivation, a, a sincerity of heart. But then he adds this. Do it also in the fear of the Lord. 
<laughs> in the fear of the Lord that you're actually employed by Christ, you might say. How does that work? When we fear the Lord, it describes an appropriate recognition of his presence and intervention in our lives. In Jeremiah 33, 9, it says this, And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and glory from all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for. Notice that this fear of God is accompanied by prosperity and God intervening. Knowing that God intervened for the good brought a sense of holy awe, a sense of fear. We read when Christ healed a woman in Mark 5, it says that she fell before him in fear and trembling. God had intervened. He had healed her. How else would you respond other than God actually touched me? God is in my life, and it brings them to their knees. The idea that Paul is communicating here is that we are so aware of God's presence in our lives, so cognizant of his eyes upon us, that when we fear him in our labor, it transforms everything. Now, this is not a, a repressive, you know, negative feeling, but a holy awe that we are accountable to God, that he is sovereign. And in the case of the Colossians, that the employers and employees would give an answer for how they worked and that God was intervening. Look at some of the other things that accompany the fear of God. In Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the, of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Notice, did you ever think of friendship with God being accompanied by the fear of God? Or Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And then Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence I mean, when I fear God, I am aware of his presence and I am confident of his intervention in my life and I proceed with confidence. I proceed drawing near to God. That's what the fear of God is to do for us. And so fearing God moves us in relationship. It causes us to hate evil. It gives us confidence that we live in a world in which God is present and intervening and and. Paul is saying, I want you to fear God as you work. I want when you, when you click in that time card, you are literally saying, God, I offer this up to you as an act of worship. You are my boss. It's not just the boss who's seeing me, but you are the one that will hold me accountable. Now, what is the sign, I ask you? that our hearts are sincere and we're truly accountable to God in our labor. You know what the sign is? That you obey him in everything. That you obey him in everything. In other words, 
We are not to sit there and grumble and protest or revolt, but we respectfully offer excellent service. Now, that is one thing to have that injunction in a free market society like America. But imagine being a slave, reading this letter for the first time, and you are in a situation in which you are being treated unfairly. You are, in, in essence, bound to your master. And Paul is saying, obey in everything. Work within this social structure by your submission. That's pretty amazing. Now, remember... He doesn't just speak to the slaves, but he speaks to the masters as well and asking them to treat the slaves with dignity. And so Paul is asking us to throw our hearts into the work to do it with sincerity, as if Christ was your employer. We offer respectful and excellent service to our employer because we're trying to please God. It's an amazing principle. The believer at work recognizes what 1 Samuel 16, 7 says. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So you do it with a sincerity of heart, recognizing the gaze of God over our labor. That's amazing. See, God is not only privy to our motives, but God is willing and eagerly wants to reward. And with such a motivation, that transforms the workplace. I would add this, that there is no secular, sacred split with Paul. There's not, you know, holy work over here and unholy. You know, you're in ministry, that's holy work. And then there's, well, then I got to, you know, work at the factory. Listen, driving a forklift is a holy and good work before God. And that God will commend and reward just as much as the man who's in vocational ministry. Being a nurse, loving your patients, treating them with respect and dignity, God will reward just as much as the Sunday school teacher. Because we offer it up as an act of worship. All of it is. It's a good and godly work. I love what John Stott said before he died. He said to his assistant, uh, John Stott was a wonderful pastor and, and writer, died in 2011, and he said this simple statement. It was the last thing he said to his assistant, do the hard thing. Do the hard thing. I mean, Stott believed that the, the easy trail, the, you know, the road most taken, the path of least resistance, that is only going to end in mediocrity, but you're to do the hard thing because when you do that, you work hard. There is honor in that. There is integrity in that. You're not just doing your labor to avoid hard work, but you're doing it to honor not just the employer, but Christ himself. The original owners of Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company had the reputation for being people of integrity, and one writer revealed their commitment to do the right thing. And he says this, a Northwestern Mutual was founded as the Mutual Life Insurance Company of the state of Wisconsin on March 2nd, 1857. 
Originally located in Janesville, Wisconsin, the fledgling company relocated to Milwaukee in 1859. Shortly after, the company experienced its first two death claims when an excursion train traveling from Janesville to Fond du Lac, uh, Wisconsin, derailed, killing 14 people, two of whom were policy owners. With losses amounting to $3,500 and with funds of only $2,000, company president Samuel Daggett and treasurer Charles Nash personally borrowed the needed funds to pay the claims immediately. And when they were asked why they did that, they said it's because these people were depending on us and we did not want to neglect our obligation. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. We offer respectful and excellent service to our employer. Why? Because God is going to reward us. I mean, why continue with integrity if the only thing we have is what the boss says of us? If the only thing we have to look forward to is a promotion, is a raise. And what, what Paul is doing, he's upping the ante. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Put your sights way above that, over the sun, not under the sun, over the sun of what God is going to do when you have such excellent service. Now, we are certainly free to change jobs in our society unlike what they could do in Paul's day. But listen, we are not free to compromise our labor with crummy work, with grumbling, with disrespect, with just showing up anytime we want. God holds us accountable for the kind of labor that we offer But he also, listen, he also holds the employer accountable. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So I can continue with respectful and and excellent service, knowing that God is going to hold my employer accountable too, especially when I am treated unfairly. And so those acting unjustly as employers will get their due from God. And that's, that's a warning applicable to both the employer and the employee. God is not impressed with your position. You're still held accountable. And so the point is that God transforms all relationships, all social structures that Christians are to be involved in. I mean, it's, you know, in the, in, in the passage in 1 Corinthians uh, 7 where Paul has a discussion about an unsaved spouse in a relationship with a Christian one. And Paul tells the Christian spouse not to leave. And why does he say not to leave? Because you sanctify your spouse. You said, does that mean your unsaved spouse becomes a Christian? No. What he's saying is you provide a godly influence upon that spouse. spouse. Stay in the relationship. Now, if the unsaved spouse leaves, he says then to the 
uh, saved spouse, you are freed up. But stay in the relationship because you sanctify, you bring a holy influence in that situation. And that's essentially what I think Paul is saying to all employees as well. You bring a holy influence, or to employers, you bring a holy influence in your situation. You treat people fairly and with dignity, and you express the spirit of Christ in that situation. And those who don't will be held accountable by God. Now, Karl Marx was one who uh, poo-pooed the idea, write that down, poo-pooed, the idea of, of Christians being rewarded because he said it, it, what, what it basically did is it was this fairy tale that allowed the powerful elite, the power structures, to take advantage of the lowlings in society. But what he failed to realize is the justice of God that is demonstrated, particularly here, and that God is going to hold not just the employees responsible, but the employers, the masters. I mean, employers can get out of whack, can they not? By losing the dignity of the individual and by thinking that profit itself is the only goal for why they have a company. Joel Manby has written an excellent little book called Love Works. And in it, he says this, organizations don't lead with love because most leaders mistakenly think profit is an end in and of itself. Consequently, such leaders make profit the focus of all decisions. The problem, however, is that profit, listen to this, it doesn't motivate most of the frontline people essential to an organization's day-to-day success. And he's right. And so Manby advocates leading with love and dignity, actually caring for employees. So as an employer, I want to make sure that the people that are under me know that I care about them. And, and Manby's theory is this, that when you do that and employees know that you care, then they are on board, they will offer more excellent service, and guess what happens to the profits? Because it's a team. So when employers lead with love, they don't intimidate. But when Christian bosses are in the workplace and they have a habit of yelling, of verbally abusing, of threatening employees, they fail to acknowledge that their influence is a stewardship from God and they're going to be held accountable to God for how they wield that influence. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that as a boss, you can't legitimately reprimand or fire somebody. That has to be done. But even that is done with dignity. You treat people with respect. Lastly, God will reward employers who treat employees with dignity. A Christian employer can never say, you know, how I do my business, how I handle my employees, that's my business. That's nobody else's business. Uh, Wrong about that. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, everything falls under his lordship. And how you do your business is his business. And I am to, I am to operate in a way that reflects his character, reflects the dignity that he gives every human being, regardless of whether they're a believer or not. 
regardless of what politics they hold, respect your employees and show them dignity. And don't get on little power trips trying to watch them squeal like little roaches when you try to step on them. And instead, treat them with respect. Employers are to be loyal and obedient to the same Lord that employees are to serve ultimately. And Mamby says this, one of the best ways a leader can demonstrate trust and respect is to listen to and involve team members in the decisions that affect them. And when you lead with love, your definition of success expands and you will experience more fulfillment at work than you ever dreamed possible, especially when times are tough. Isn't that the truth? I mean, it would, it would kill me if I knew the staff that I work most intimately with here at CCC thought that I was just a big jerk and, and only followed in, you know, in obedience to me just because I'm their boss. That would kill me. I care about them. I want them to care about the job, obviously. We have job performance that we're required to do. But there's to, there's to be relationships to know that we're in this together. There's a, there is a mutual dignified dialogue. Not too long ago, we were talking about thing. I gave a proposal, and I could tell it didn't go over too well. <laughs> and, 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 and they began to tell me, I go, what do you guys think? And, and one by one, they began to say, hey, I just don't like this for this reason, that reason. I go, well, you know what? You're probably right. And, and, but the point is, you need to listen. You need to make sure that they're on board. You just treat them with dignity as, as, as a part of the team. Listen, uh, yesterday, Janet and I were looking at a house. We were thinking about moving this year. And we got to uh, outside of Springfield, and I looked at the GPS, and I still had about 10 or 12 miles to go just to get to the house. Now, I know for some of you, come to church, God bless you, you come from long ways, and, you know, we love that, but when I got to thinking of, you know, making all the calls that I make and all the appointments and living that far out, I told Janet, even before we got to the house, I go, this is not going to be worth it. I can tell you right now, I don't care what the house looks like. I'm not going to make this drive, okay? Of course, those of you from big cities, you're like, you are such a wimp. I mean, we drive 45 minutes to work every day, right? The point is, is that before we even got there, I knew that the trip wasn't worth it. And many of you are in jobs where you realize the labor's not worth it. The payoff is not enough. I mean, I'm in this thing. The boss doesn't give me an inch. I get, I get no thanks. I've had the same pay forever, and whatever raise I get is just minuscule. It's not worth it. Now, listen, you're certainly free to change a job, right? I mean, we, we know that, at least in this market, you can do that. But while you're doing it, Know that there is reward that goes way beyond just what your employer can provide for you. And that's part of our problem. We're thinking too small. you got to think big, bigger. Our aspirations are beyond just the immediate, but what God can do for us. There's a little clip. I've shown this before, but I think it's a beautiful illustration that what we do in our jobs extends beyond this life. Check this out. 